Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey, listeners. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We are glad you're joining us today. We are. January is underway, and this is my first case of the year. So I thought that I would start out the year with a listener request. We love it when listeners send us their suggestions. We couldn't do this podcast without you, so thanks to each one of you for tuning in each week. Our listener Natasha commented on one of our Facebook posts saying that this case has always stayed with her. And to Natasha, I say, I can totally see why. Are we in for a wild ride today? We absolutely are. Once I started looking into it, I felt like this victim's story needs to be told. Surprisingly, it doesn't seem like it is talked about as much as it could be. Melissa and I often talk about how there are typically way more victims in a case that we don't even realize. How the damage from one lousy dirt bag can be so far-reaching. Today's case affected so many people for so many reasons and for so many years. I'll warn you up front that our victim today was only 17 years old when her life was snatched from her, and the case does involve sexual abuse. This case will give us a lot to talk about, and I think it'll stay with some of you for a while. Oh no. In 1999, 39-year-old Michael, or Mike Dishon Sr., and 34-year-old Edna Dishon were living a happy life with their three children a daughter, and two sons. As a little side note, I'm going to point out now that Edna would later change her name to Edna Jett. Her and Mike's marriage would not survive the horror that I'm about to share with you. And sadly, this seems to happen a lot. It does. It's so sad that marriages are sometimes collateral damage for a dirtbag's actions. That is so true. There is actually a really interesting article published in the U.S. National Library of Medicine about how parents are affected by the death of a child. I won't go into the details, but losing a child does greatly affect a parent adversely in a number of different ways, including marital satisfaction, depression, psychological well-being, physical health, particularly cardiovascular health, job satisfaction, and much, much more. Having a child murdered would have to be the worst thing for a parent to go through. It would be awful. The Dishon family was living in Shepherdsville, Bullock County, Kentucky. Shepherdsville is a home, rural-class city along the 240-kilometer or 150-mile-long Salt River and is about 32 kilometers or 20 miles away from Louisville. In 1999, the population was just over 6,000. Today it is over 14,000, so still not very big. Our victim, 17-year-old Jessica Dawn Dishon, was born on May 2, 1982, in Shepherdsville. She had two younger brothers, Christopher, and Michael Jr. For simplicity, I will refer to Jessica's father as Mike and her brother as Michael, even though his family lovingly called him Bubby. Oh, that's so cute. It really is. The boys attended Burnham Middle School, and Jessica was a senior at Bullet Central High School. Jessica was described as being passionate about life. She had a job at the local fast food restaurant, Hardee's, and enjoyed being with her friends. She was very close to her family. Some reports stated that her plan was to attend culinary school after graduating. She loved to cook for her family, 
and her brothers lovingly joked that sometimes she made things that they couldn't really eat. Other reports said that she had plans of becoming an accountant or a vet, but I think those were in the running before she decided on culinary school. Either way, she was making plans for her future. Her whole life was ahead of her. It really was, and she was the type of girl who was going to make something of it. Prior to graduating year, Jessica was part of the ROTC, which stands for Reserve Officer Training Corps. I believe there's a junior program for people still in high school. She excelled in this program, but she had dropped out for her senior year since she decided that she no longer wanted to pursue it as part of her future. Her supervisor said that she was super trustworthy. As a teenager, they entrusted her to watch over over $100,000 worth of equipment. Jessica was an attractive girl with beautiful hair, and I must say, after looking at many photographs, she absolutely rocked the 90s hairstyles. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) I felt a little nostalgic. The 90s hairstyles were amazing. They really were. Did you have the bang flip? Oh, I absolutely did with the spiral perm. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Had both of those. That took some work. There was a finesse to getting that just right. It took a blow dryer and a lot of hairspray. (laughs) It's like having a fan on top of your head. (laughs) I know. What were we thinking? We thought we were cool at the time. (laughs) And we were. (laughs) And it sounds like Jessica was too. She really was. Being hardworking and responsible, Jessica saved her money from working at Hardee's until she had enough to buy herself a car, a red Pontiac. Do you remember buying your first car? Yep. (laughs) It wasn't a red Pontiac. I helped my grandpa restore an antique truck. That was my first car. That is so cool. Mine was a beater, but I couldn't have been more excited at the time. It was a Mustang, but it hardly ran. I was so excited that I didn't mind one bit that I had to drive with both feet. I couldn't take my foot off of the gas or it would stall. That's awesome. (laughs) But it was a Mustang and I thought I was cool. (laughs) Jessica loved her family. Her younger brother said that she was protective of them, and the three of them were described as having a special bond. She loved butterflies and animals in general. She was obsessed with her new car and had a new boyfriend whom she was really excited about. Young love is so amazing. It's so fun. As opposed to old love. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing like it, really. (laughs) On the morning of Friday, September 10th, 1999, Jessica was getting ready for school. She would have just barely started grade 12. She would get up on school days at 6.45 and leave the house by 7.15. Her brothers had left before her to catch their bus. Her parents, Mike and Edna, had already left for work as well. She was home alone. She was 17 and perfectly capable of getting herself to school. Yeah, you wouldn't think anything of leaving a 17-year-old at home alone. No, and it sounded like the family was getting up like in the five o'clock hour range to get ready out the door. The boys were on the bus by 630. And then she was able to get up and kind of have the morning to herself. Oh, that's an early morning for those boys. It was. And the parents. (laughs) At around 1.30 in the afternoon, Edna got home from work. When she pulled up, she noticed that her daughter's red car was still parked on the driveway. She looked inside and could see Jessica's school bag, work clothes, and purse inside the car. She must have had a shift after school and was planning to go straight there after classes. Upon a closer look, Edna noticed that one of Jessica's shoes was sitting on the driver's seat, and her cell phone was on the passenger seat with the number 9 entered into the keypad. No way. Yeah. I always find one shoe so disturbing. Me too. 
especially when you see it on the side of the road. Yes, it just doesn't look right. Well, because no one walks around with just one shoe. No, this would have been so horrific for her mom to find. Oh, I cannot even imagine. There's no guessing that something bad has happened. Absolutely. Unfortunately, that wouldn't be as obvious to everybody involved. What? I'll get into it. The keys to her car would later be found on the floorboard of the vehicle. Her mom could not find Jessica anywhere and found this very odd. It was alarming to her. No kidding. It's screaming the whole play. Absolutely it was. One shoe, a nine for 911, and her keys are there. Her car is packed like she was just about to leave and she's nowhere around. Yes. This is very suspicious. How could anybody not see it? That's a really good question. And we will get into all of it. This case is going to blow your mind in that aspect. Thinking Jessica could still be in school, Edna called the school to make sure she was okay. This is when she learned that Jessica never arrived that day. How would she have been in school? Well, maybe she had been picked up by a friend. She was just covering her bases. Like, I'm going to call the school, probably hoping that her daughter was actually there. But all of her school books are in the back of the car. They were. She's grasping at straws. She is. She's panicking. And that's what any parent would do. They would. You would have to double check and make sure. Mm -hmm. The school did not call Edna or Mike to tell them that their daughter never arrived that morning. So they had spent their whole day up until this point thinking that their daughter was in school, safe and sound. It's just so different than what it's like now. Yeah, you get a call right away. (laughs) You get a text, a call, and an email. (laughs) Exactly. At least in our area, that's what happens. You do. And it's by the first five minutes of class. It is. Because sometimes I'll hear my text go off and I'll hear the phone ring at the same time. (laughs) There's no skipping here. There isn't. And I guess as annoying as that is for us parents, it's a good thing that is needed. Well, it makes me appreciate it now a little bit more. Mm Mm-hmm. Not so annoying. So true. Jessica's brother, Michael, was the next person to get home. He later said, quote, I was the second one to come and get off the bus and find it. I thought maybe she went with a friend. But after hours passed and everything, you start getting very nervous and stuff. Edna had also become nervous at that point. She called her husband, Mike, to come home and help them find their daughter. Over the next couple of hours, the family searched the school, her work, and her friends' places, calling whoever they could think of that might have been with Jessica. Oh, I can't imagine the pure desperation of looking for your child. No, it's honestly a parent's worst nightmare. You know how you feel when you lose them in the shopping center for just a short moment? Yeah, I can't imagine searching for hours and not being able to find them. And they don't have their cell phone with them that was left in the car. By evening, the Dishons went into the police station to report their daughter missing. They were told to go home and wait 24 hours, even though she was a minor. Did they tell the police about the things they found in her car? They absolutely did. That one shoe is still there, and all of her belongings are in the car. Yeah. This is where I'm saying not everybody was as alarmed by it as they were. The people who should have been, the police, were not. How did they miss those signals that this is foul play? This whole case is a gong show right from the start. I'm just going to warn you. Is it because it's a small town, do you think? Maybe. Oh, man. Would it have made a difference? It absolutely would have made a difference. No way. Mm-hmm. Oh. Jessica was still alive at this point. That is beyond sad. It really is. The Dishons went back home. Edna started cleaning to try and ease her anxiousness. 
one of Jessica's brothers went outside to feed the dogs. While out there, he thought he heard his sister scream for help. He ran back into the house to tell his parents. She's close enough that they can hear her? Well, there is speculation as to if her brother actually did hear her or not. Oh my goodness. Mike, however, grabbed his gun and ran into the yard to see what was happening. He immediately saw his brother pull up to their house. Together, they scoped the area. In their search, they came upon their neighbor burning a pile of clothing, which seemed odd. No kidding. They would later see him burning more things in his yard. They watched them burn her things. All we know is that he was burning a pile of clothing. The next morning finally came. Edna and Mike rushed back to the police station. Bullock County Sheriff's Office sent rookie of seven months, Deputy David Greenwell, to go and check it out. Deputy Greenwell felt like something was off right from the start, and so he called his senior officer, Detective Charles Mann, not once, but twice, to plead with him for his help in the situation. Detective Mann dismissed his request, and without even coming to speak to the Dishon family, he wrote Jessica off as a runaway. No, he didn't. He really did. He assured the young officer that she would come back home eventually. Detective Mann could not have been more wrong. And it would later come to be known, as I said, that Jessica was still alive at this point, likely praying that someone would come and help her. Had this officer responded, things might have turned out differently. That's horrible. Had he just become so jaded in his job that everybody was just a runaway? Like, what is his deal? Well, it is speculated that Detective Mann blew off the request to check things out, mostly because it was the weekend and he was off shift. Kind of like, this is a small town, nothing bad happens. She probably took off for the weekend with her friends. She'll be back. And nothing like this had probably happened to them before, and so this isn't even on their radar. Right. This would later be described as one of Kentucky's worst cases, let alone something like this happening in a small town like Shepherdsville. That's no excuse. It is not. The Dishons knew from the start that their daughter hadn't just taken off. Even in 1999, how many teenagers do you think would take off without their phones, car, and personal items like a purse? This lost time could have been pivotal in finding Jessica alive. As we all know, those first few hours after a person goes missing are crucial. If 9 out of 10 times a situation like this does turn out to be just a teen on the run, don't we still owe it to the one who didn't just run away to investigate what happened, each and every time? I do understand the 24-hour rule, but I thought that that was not the case when there was evidence of foul play. And especially with children. I get that she's a teenager. But this is now past the 24 hours. Oh, yeah. We're not even talking that time frame anymore. No, she went missing Friday morning. This is Saturday. But now that they've sent the rookie, the rookie to come out and just check it out. So to me, that means they're not even giving it their full attention. (laughs) And it was the rookie who was the only one who was like, hey, something is not right here. And they were blowing him off. He must have felt awful. Oh, he does. Even after reporting their daughter missing. The Dishons felt like police were not taking her case seriously. Mike later said that an officer looked through the car without gloves on. Worse than that, the car was not taped off or treated as a crime scene. Neighbors and relatives had looked through the car to search for clues, and a reporter had even aired a live update while sitting in her red Pontiac. What? The way this case was handled from the start would be a catalyst for problem after problem. The scene of the crime was now completely contaminated. Aside from Deputy Greenwell, most of the local police severely failed this young woman. 
evidence was just destroyed. All because they didn't think anything like this would happen. Right. They thought, oh, she'll show up. That's beyond words. It really is. As you can imagine, Mike and Edna were frustrated. So they decided to go straight to the FBI for help. Their local police weren't listening, so they're like, we have to find someone who will. The FBI typically only get involved in a case like this if they are either invited by the local police or by a family member of a victim. Since the parents of the missing girl were the ones to approach them, they decided to step in and help. And thank goodness they did. I didn't know that that was possible, that you could request the FBI. Apparently you can. That is interesting. Yeah, I listened to Mike talk about how he called them. I would have thought it would have had to gone through some chain of command. Me too. But no, it can come from that local police station or a family member. Good on Mike for knowing that. Yeah. Well, you can imagine how helpless they were feeling, that the police were not helping them out. And they knew their daughter. She was responsible. She would not have just taken off. She wasn't some angry teen who was acting out. It's so interesting that the police took that stance, though, without any evidence to support it. Yeah. Well, they never even really looked at the evidence. They didn't even look into the family situation or did she have a reason to run away? No, they just sent their rookie out. They didn't even tell him to take pictures. He just did on his own. To me, it felt like all of a sudden the police were taking this case a little bit more seriously with the FBI now around. Yeah, no kidding. Kind of like doing your job extra careful when your boss is looking. But that would be short-lived. In the meantime, locals were doing their best to gather, hold vigils, and organize search parties to look for Jessica. Upon further investigation of Jessica's car, authorities believed that it proved she had been in a struggle with her attacker when likely getting into or already in her car. It was assumed that she lost her shoe during the attack and had entered the number 9, just like you guessed, into her phone to frantically attempt to call 911 for help, only to be stopped by a dirtbag. There was also a chunk of plastic that had been broken off near the bottom of her seat. This made me think that she could have been holding on for her life while being torn from her vehicle. And again, this was broad daylight early in the morning. And were there neighbors close by? There were. And we're going to talk about that. I do want to note that Jessica had gone missing first thing on Friday morning, and her car wasn't officially searched by the police until Monday (gasps) after the FBI were called. Again, so much time wasted. She was still alive while the police sat on their hands. This mistake would only be one of many throughout Jessica's case. Between the Dishon family and the FBI, they put out an $18,000 reward to anyone who could come forward with any information that would help them find Jessica. Despite their efforts, and despite the lure of a reward, it would take 17 days after Jessica's disappearance to finally find their daughter. Oh, I can't imagine. That'd be torture. On September 27, 1999, a bus driver named Karen Hobbs spotted something as she was driving on a dirt road that was part of her regular route. It was a grassy and treed area along the Salt River. She stopped to see what it was. To her horror, she discovered Jessica's body, 90 feet off Greenwell Ford Road, in the Salt River Bottoms, only 11 kilometers or 7 miles away from the Dishon home. This area was known to be a garbage dumping site. Karen promptly called the police. That is just so wrong. It really is. I hate that it was in a garbage dumping site. Yep. Dirtbag. Total dirtbag. I honestly hate this man. Jessica's young body was found propped up, sitting against a tree. She had been viciously beaten and then strangled to death. Because of advanced decomposition and the severe beating, her identity had to be confirmed through dental records. 
The injuries to her body were horrible. Jessica had been hit so hard that she had a broken jaw. One of her feet had been cut off, along with four fingers. An autopsy also concluded that she had been savagely raped multiple times. The FBI described it as being, quote, violently sexually assaulted. The autopsy also suggested that Jessica had been alive for up to three days after first going missing, before her death. This means that the dirtbag who drug her out of her car kept her for days to torture, beat, and rape before ultimately strangling her to death. It means she could have been saved. She totally could have and should have been. Her pants were pulled halfway down, and there was a rope tied around her leg that had traces of red, silver, and gray paint on it. When police examined the scene, they determined that Jessica had been moved to the spot that she was found only 18 hours prior to being found. The rope around her leg was likely used to drag her to the spot where she was found. She was originally 15 feet further away from the road. They determined her original spot by finding an area with her hair and body fluids. Police believed that this meant Jessica knew her attacker and that they wanted her to be found. This was personal. I also think this is why she was propped up against the tree, so she would be more easily spotted by a passerby. Was it like an act of remorse? This person was wanting her to be found. Wanting her to be found because he was remorseful or wanting her to be found because he was boasting? I think he was having a hard time dealing with it, but I don't know that it was because of remorse. Okay. Because Jessica's body was found in such a horrific state, her initial identification had to be made by someone who knew her. No. Mike, Jessica's father, would later say that he was unable to be the one to ID his baby girl. He couldn't bring himself to do it. Edna, her mother, did muster up the courage to confirm her daughter's identity. Edna was taken to the crime scene to ID Jessica on site. What? She was. Why? I don't know. Isn't that just so much more traumatic? I would think so. But I honestly don't understand most of what this police force did. That just seems wrong. It does. Why would you expose the mother of the victim to that? That's a really good question, Melissa. An identity could have been made? At the coroner's office where she could have been at least a little bit cleaned up. Right. And her missing foot and fingers could have been hidden, so to speak. And what had happened to her wouldn't have been displayed for her mother to see. Right, with her pants halfway pulled down. Oh my goodness. I can't believe they did that to that mother. Me either. You're not going to be a fan of this police force. Edna does speak about this experience. She said she could not recognize her daughter by looking at her face. Learning this broke my heart. She said she knew it was her daughter, though, when she saw the butterfly tattoo on her side. She was also wearing a recognizable necklace and her class ring. Edna knew it was her Jessica, but dental records confirmed it. How long does it take to get dental records confirmed? That I'm not sure. It's like under 24 hours. Why even subject the mother to that? Yeah, that's true. If you have another way to identify it, I'm just blown away. No. She was badly decomposing and had been beaten unrecognizably. Take a picture of the tattoo and show the mother. Like there's, oh my God, I'm just, that's not okay. No, we're enraged for Edna. It's really not. And to hear her talk about it is so heartbreaking. She says she knelt down beside her daughter and couldn't recognize her face. It's just wrong. Sorry, I'm just caught up in this. I just have to talk about it. They could have done it a hundred different ways. Yeah. Because that image is never going to leave Edna. 
No. It is just so wrong. It really is. That scene would be hard enough for trained professionals to get over, let alone the mother of a child. It makes me angry because they waited so long to find her. And then all of a sudden, they have to identify her so quickly that we need to bring her mother to the crime scene. Mm -hmm. You didn't care to find her when you had a chance to actually do something about her death. Right. She didn't have to be found that way at all. She could have been found alive. And I honestly think it would have been likely. She was not that far away. Oh, this is bad. It is. Should I move on? I don't know. I'm still (laughs) angry. It's just so... Sorry, I'll move on, but that's bad. It is. It's totally unnecessary. It just inflicts trauma for no reason at all. Mm -hmm. There are a million other ways that they could have done that. Absolutely. They're taking a horrible situation and making it even worse. Like they haven't already inflicted enough pain and suffering on this family by ignoring them. But they're just so focused now on, oh, now we've got a crime. Now we've got to solve it. Yeah. Without any thought to what impact this is going to have on her family. Right. Were they thinking, oh, crap, we dropped the ball on this. We better get things moving. Probably. I wouldn't put it past them. It's just so wrong. I agree. To an already traumatized family. Yep. (laughs) Sorry. I don't know why this bothers me so much. It's because you're a mother and you can imagine just how horrific this would be. It's not right. No, it's not. They should know better. It's true. They should have known better on so many things. Understandably, Jessica's family and loved ones were devastated. They publicly thanked their community for all the love and support that they had received. Mike said that he would always remember his firstborn child as a sweet and innocent girl. The community continued to rally behind the Dishon family and managed to raise $10,000 as a reward for any information that would lead to the arrest and conviction of Jessica's brutal murderer. Jessica was buried in Cedar Grove, Bullitt County, Kentucky. Now that Jessica was found, police had to change their focus from locating a kidnapped child to finding who killed her. They did this by first canvassing the area and talking to as many neighbors as possible. It's a little too late. Mm -hmm. And I should add, or so they say. What? I don't think they talked to everybody that they could have. And that'll get explained later. It did not take long before police narrowed in on the Dishon's next door neighbor, the one who Mike and his brother had seen burning the pile of clothing. His name was David Brooks, but he went by Bucky. People had started to notice that the Brooks brothers were acting off. The Brooks home was owned by James Brooks. James was the father of two sons, David, whom I'll call Bucky, and Joseph, who went by Tommy. What? Yeah, I don't know why. Okay. The Brooks and Dishon families were friendly with one another, even playing softball together at times. Bucky and Tommy said that they knew the parents, but did not know Jessica very well. They were neighborly, though, to the point of helping one another out with their farms. How old were these boys? They were adults. He was around 40, I believe, at this time. Okay. One of the reasons that suspicion fell on Bucky was because he was allegedly the last person to see Jessica alive. At first, he said that he saw Jessica walking in the direction towards her school. However, he soon changed his story and said that he actually saw her getting into her car to go to school that morning. One report also said that at one point he denied seeing her at all. Oh, this is suspicious. It is. Another reason was that the Brooks family repeatedly refused to allow the Dishons or the police to search their property. Usually, if you have nothing to hide, you hide nothing. However, did this mean that they were guilty of murder or just something else? Adding to the suspicion, although not admissible in court, Bucky was later given a polygraph exam and failed it. 
I actually read that he took six polygraphs in total. Two were inconclusive and four detected dishonesty. Do these boys have previous criminal pasts? Not that I could find. Okay. When questioned about his whereabouts on the day Jessica went missing, Bucky said that he was at work. He worked on a farm and apparently police couldn't find anyone who was at the farm to say that they saw the 40-year-old man that day. Some witnesses came forward and said that they saw Bucky's van on the same road where Jessica's body was eventually found, just days prior to her body being discovered. After obtaining a search warrant with the aid of a scent dog, a pair of gardening gloves with an odd odor on them was found in a farm building under a cushion. Rope that matched the description of the rope found tied around Jessica's leg was also found, along with a photograph of Jessica. The photo was found the second time they searched the property. Was the photo an old one of Jessica or one that had been recently taken while she was captured? I believe it was an old photo. As it often happens in a close-knit community, word of Bucky possibly being Jessica's murderer spread like wildfire, and the people of Bullock County were enraged, including Mike and Edna. Imagine the betrayal you would feel to think that your longtime neighbor could do this to your child. Almost be lynch mobbish. It would. Instead of running with his tail between his legs, Bucky lashed back. He became defensive and even started to make harassing phone calls to the Dishons. No. Bucky was said to have a low IQ of 61. Okay. The average IQ for a man is between 85 and 114. Some people believe that his low intelligence may be the reason that he reacted so poorly. The phone calls he made to them were quite horrible. But people are saying he likely didn't have the capacity to know how to deal with all of this stuff that he's being accused of. Exactly. This, though, gave police enough reason to arrest Bucky in 2001 and hold him in custody. He was eventually charged with capital murder and kidnapping. His trial was set to start in January of 2003. The prosecution made it clear that they would be seeking the death penalty in Jessica's case. Edna and Mike were happy about this news. They believed the police had the right guy in the death of their daughter. Bucky's brother Tommy was also charged with tampering with physical evidence. Bucky remained behind bars for two years until his trial began on January 29, 2003. During court proceedings, the evidence presented against Bucky was circumstantial at best. Despite the lead detective for the case, Detective Charles Mann, being certain that they had their guy. He had to be certain, though, because he had already messed up. Right. I wrote just like he was certain Jessica had been a runaway. But is this going to cause him to mess this up, too? He does mess it up. Because he gets tunnel vision. Now Mm -hmm. he's got to find a perp, and he doesn't care if the perp's the real one at all. Exactly. And this is how he messes it up. While on the stand, Detective Mann made mention that the reason Bucky was their main suspect was because he had failed a polygraph test. I am sure that most of you listening, even without being a detective, know that polygraphs are not allowed to be used in court. Detective Mann played dumb to this fact, like he didn't know he wasn't supposed to say anything about the test. The defense would argue that police knew that Bucky's IQ was way too low to even be allowed to take a lie detector test in the first place he would not be able to reasonably understand the questions, let alone answer them. It was also later said that the way police interrogated Bucky was to their own advantage. He was easily confused and swayed by them, and perhaps this is why his story kept changing. That makes sense. The judge saw through what was happening and declared Bucky's case a mistrial. The charges against him and his brother were dropped in September of 2003. 
the prosecution realized they didn't have enough evidence to get a conviction. Because of lazy police work, Jessica's case would go cold and remain unsolved for 15 years. No way. However, before I tell you how Jessica's case was eventually solved, I do want to share a few more things about Bucky. And then we will briefly talk about him again near the end, because he really got the short end of the stick and was indirectly another victim of today's dirtbag. Not only did Bucky lose two years of his life behind bars as an innocent man, he and his family would continue to endure abuse at the hands of the community for years to come. Well, because it's not like he was exonerated. They just didn't have enough evidence against him. So it would still appear like he was guilty. Exactly. There were some who believed Bucky got off on a technicality. And because Jessica's case remained unsolved for so long, they thought Bucky was getting off scot-free. Oh, man. I watched a video on YouTube titled The Real David Bucky Brooks. It is filmed by a husband and wife claiming to be Good Samaritans. And I assure you that nothing in the just over three minute video suggests to me that they are anything but dirtbags. Because of his wrongful arrest, Bucky had a hard time finding employment. No one wanted to hire him. His house looks run down in the video, and the yard is in disarray. However, there were many reports of people vandalizing his property on a regular basis. These garbage people, while recording, come up to Bucky's property and demand that he moves his vehicle, which is parked in his own driveway. They say that he needs to move it so that they can clean up all his quote-unquote mess. It is clear that they are trying to egg him on. Bucky gets so upset that he threatens to get his gun. Bucky's wife comes out of the house and quickly grabs an angel statue. She called it her mother's angel. It looks like a statue that you might see on a burial plot. She carries it back to the house and the woman yammers that they're just getting the things that they care about from the yard. The man threatens Bucky that if he doesn't want his vehicle damaged, he better move it. And the woman snidely yells out that someone will just give him another one. It is clear that they were only there to try and humiliate him. During the video, all three of his children come outside to see what is going on. Oh, that is sad. It is. But it sounds like this was a daily occurrence. The police did eventually advocate at one point for people to help the Brooks family out. Bucky and his wife of nearly three decades had three children. He lost two years of income. He had a hard time getting a job because a lot of people thought he was still guilty. And then something happened in 2005 that made his job opportunities even more scarce. Believe it or not, Bucky ran into a burning house to save four children. As a result, he ended up with insulation in his lungs. This caused breathing issues as well as other medical problems for him. He could no longer lift heavy things and do what he used to working on the farm. So he wasn't a dirtbag, he was a hero. He really was. To top things off, Bucky's five-year-old daughter had a heart attack and needed three open-heart surgeries. This poor family. I know. Needless to say, they were barely making ends meet. And I just feel like that is a lot for one man and his family to go through. My heart really went out to Bucky. After the real killer was finally charged with Jessica's murder, a member of the police force said, quote, I never did think that Bucky was guilty, but I couldn't step in and say not to charge him because what if he is guilty? I've watched him. I've watched his family grow up. I think the community maybe needs to step in and help them out a little because actually the community kicked them aside when they thought Bucky was guilty. Uh, so did that police officer by not saying anything. Right. The officer said that the Brooks family needed everything from food, clothing, and even toilet paper. This officer and his wife were part of an organized effort to help them out. As you can imagine, though, this help fueled the fire for the lousy community members who were just out for his blood. 
That's why the lady was like, oh, they'll just give you another car. Some people think the police just advocated for them to try and prevent the Brooks family from suing the police force. Yeah, to save face. Yeah. However, Bucky never pursued any financial gain from what happened to him. He even later said that he forgave the police for what they did to him and that everyone makes mistakes. And I think this says a lot about his character. It does. Sadly, David Bucky Brooks passed away on June 9th, 2021 from his own heart issues. Ones that were probably complicated by running into a fire. Oh, I'm sure they were. And the stress of being accused of murder for 15 years. Did he pass away before the dirtbag was caught? No. That is really sad. But it does say something about how careful we need to be about jumping to conclusions. It really does. And how sometimes people can try to make the evidence fit the suspect. Oh, absolutely. It's surprising how often that happens. It's scary. Remember when I said that police were confident that Jessica knew her attacker and that it was most likely someone close to home? Well, that was the one thing that they seemed to have gotten right up until this point. Jessica's killer was, in fact, somebody not only who she knew, but someone her entire family knew and loved, which honestly makes this case so much more sickening than it already is. And this next part is going to make you so angry as well, Melissa. Because apparently police had been told who the actual dirtbag was who took Jessica's life while Bucky was on trial. By who? This person knew details that were not released in the press, but the police ignored their claims. They had decided that Bucky was their guy, and who knows why it took so many years after his mistrial even to finally look into this perp. The name of the perp was Stanley Dishon, (gasps) Mike's brother and Jessica's uncle. The one that pretended to help look for her? Yes. What a dirtbag. Yeah, he was super involved in trying to find Jessica. Well, super involved in leading everybody in the wrong direction from where she was. No, surprisingly not. What? I'll explain everything. In retrospect, the family could see suspicious behavior from Stanley after Jessica went missing. At the time, it could just be written off as behavior from a distraught uncle. No one had any idea. And the thought of Stanley watching not only Bucky suffer for so many years, but to watch his own brother and family mourn and search for answers for 15 years and not say anything takes a special kind of evil in my opinion. He is the worst type of human. One of the reasons the police might have discounted the man who said he knew Stanley was the killer was because they were incarcerated at the time. But so was Stanley. And we'll get into why. I do want to point out, though, that this jailmate did not ask for or get anything in return for his statement. There was no reduced sentence. He was just trying to do the right thing. So why didn't they believe him? Good question. Stanley had been bragging about what he did to his niece. No. This man was not gaining anything, and he knew things only the police did. So it blows my mind that the claims were not taken seriously. That is so wrong. So wrong. This part infuriated me. This was while Bucky was on trial. Do the police that were involved or the prosecutors that were involved in this case, do they face any consequences for their actions? Not that I could find. And the lead investigator actually passes away before it's solved. Hmm. We hate to harp on police because we genuinely are so grateful for them. But I'm not even done telling you about just how badly this police force dropped the ball for Jessica. They didn't even just drop the ball. They destroyed it. They doused it in gasoline and set it on fire. Stanley's wife at the time of the murder, Carol Ann Walters, later said that she thought it odd that police never came to talk to her husband about Jessica's disappearance. 
I don't think she immediately thought her husband had anything to do with it, but you would just think police would be talking to everyone they could about Jessica, especially family. And this is all in retrospect. Right. It's so much easier to see in hindsight. Exactly. Because they were all going through it at the time. Mm -hmm. Carol said that her husband acted, quote, very nervous and peculiar during the time that Jessica was missing. She said he couldn't sleep and that he was obsessed with watching the TV to see if anything was reported about Jessica. Which would seem like normal behavior if you're worried about your niece. Right. It can easily be explained away. Mike said that his brother Stanley was overbearing in the search to find Jessica. One report said that he told Mike that he had a premonition to look for Jessica in the river bottoms. He felt like she could be buried there. So he was trying to lead them to her body. Right. Not distract them. But while she was living? This was after he took her life. Willing to try anything, the family set out to find Jessica where Stanley told them to look. They were only about two miles away from where Jessica's body would later be found when Stanley suddenly began shaking and became ill. He was vomiting and had to be taken back home. Mike said it was really hard to stop looking and take his brother back. Police would find out later that Mike and his son were super close to where Jessica's body was when this happened. So he's having these physical reactions. Yeah, it was distressing him. Because of what he had done. Right. So he was wanting to lead them there, but when they were getting close, it just made him physically sick. The closer police got to finding Jessica, the more strangely Stanley was said to behave. When the family was informed that Jessica's body had been discovered, Mike said that Stanley again vomited. He said he wondered why his brother was getting sick when, quote-unquote, it was our kid. After supposedly just learning that his niece was murdered, Mike said Stanley told him that he bet that Bucky Brooks had something to do with it. He fingered him. He did. He wanted the suspicion to be taken away from him at any cost. That is such a dirtbag move. He's so despicable. Carol said that Stanley's lack of sleep got even worse once Jessica was found. This behavior helps to explain why Jessica's body had been moved 15 feet closer to the road to help her be found. Stanley couldn't take it any longer. The informant jailmate not only told police what Stanley did to Jessica, he also told them why and where he dumped her body. It blows my mind. They didn't even go look there. They had all of that information and they didn't do anything with it. They just let another innocent man sit on trial. Mm -hmm. And continue to suffer after the trial. Yeah, this was not just during the trial. Bucky was persecuted for years to come. Stanley was such a monster that he had been sexually abusing his niece for years. Stanley was worried that since Jessica now had a boyfriend, she would tell on him. I think he was also jealous of her relationship with her boyfriend. No way. Uh Uh-huh. Because they trusted their brother, Mike and Edna had allowed Stanley to live with them on and off for years. What a betrayal. Total betrayal. All the while that he was living with them, he had been sexually assaulting Jessica. Knowing that Stanley had lived with the family, it is absurd that it took until 2013 for police to interview him about Jessica. I'll explain in a bit why he was finally questioned. Neither Mike nor Edna had any suspicion that this was happening to their daughter. It was a slap in the face when they learned he was doing this in their home while they were taking care of Stanley. Mike said, we fed him, we housed him, we helped him get a job. When they found out that Stanley was a suspect, at first it was shocking and hard to believe. That being said, Mike did say, quote, I'm going to tell you right now, if Stanley's involved in this, I will see him get the death penalty. Mike also gave more information on who Stanley was as a person. 
I will talk briefly about Stanley growing up, and then we'll get into what happened to Jessica on the morning of her disappearance. If I did my math correctly, Stanley is Mike's older brother by one year. He is 65 years old now. He would have been 41 when he murdered his niece. At the time of his incarceration, he was 5'9 and 142 pounds, and he is now 170 pounds. Mike and Stanley had the same upbringing. Mike turned out just fine. Stanley obviously did not. Stanley admitted that he was uneducated. He said he finished grade school, which I think means he stopped going after he finished elementary school, which would have been quite young. Mike did not mention anything regarding childhood abuse that I could find. The only abuse he mentioned was at the hands of his big brother. Stanley was said to have a temper and would fly off the handle at the slightest infraction, and often over really petty things. Mike said about his brother, quote, He wouldn't hold back from shooting you or cutting you. If you made him mad enough, he would cut you. And Mike was not exaggerating. There were two separate instances in their childhood when Stanley shot one of his brothers with a shotgun and stabbed the other one. Oh, man. Yeah. It sounded like both recovered, but this speaks to just how volatile he is. Despite knowing how violent his brother could get, Mike didn't want to believe that his brother could sexually assault anyone, especially his daughter. He actually stood up for his brother when he was first charged with sexual abuse charges in 2002. Wait, they knew he was a sexual predator? Uh Uh-huh. And they're not connecting the dots? Nope, they still didn't look into him. What? Yep. They knew she had been savagely sexually assaulted, and he's a sexual predator that had access to her. And they didn't even question him about Jessica. That's what I mean. It started with the car, and it just gets worse from there. Wow. It would turn out that Mike was wrong. His brother Stanley was an incestuous pedophile to many children in their extended family, not just to Jessica. What? In 2002, Stanley was charged with sexually abusing two little girls, ages 8 and 10. He was also charged with sodomizing one of them. It was said that he threatened the girls whom he was related to that he would spank them if they told anyone. So this is three years after Jessica's death. Correct. Stanley entered an Alford plea for first-degree sodomy. We have heard of this in previous cases. An Alford plea is when a defendant does not admit that they are guilty, but does admit that there is enough evidence against them for a conviction. I do not know any man who would enter this plea in a charge of sexually abusing a child unless they were guilty. Seems like an odd move. Mm -hmm. Stanley was sentenced to 10 years behind bars in 2005 for these charges as part of his Alford plea. He was almost finished serving his sentence for these charges when another sexual assault charge was slapped against him, this time of sexually abusing a girl under the age of 12 in 1982. He was given another charge of deviate sexual intercourse with a relative between 1982 and 1987. He faced a second charge of sodomy as well as an incest charge. Another relative came forward and more charges were laid, this time for deviant sexual intercourse with a male relative under the age of 12 in 1996 and 1997. So this man is a serial pedophile rapist to the children he could get his hands on in his family. It is mind-blowing that no one suspected anything. Among the children that Stanley sexually abused for years included two daughters in his care, his own daughter and stepdaughter. I actually think they were the ones he entered the Alford plea for. Because they are children, I did not even look for their names. But to summarize, aside from the years he abused Jessica, he also abused a family relative from ages 6 to 9, and then again from ages 15 to 20, a 7-year-old female relative, a male relative from ages 9 to 10, 
a girl from ages 7 to 10, and another little girl from ages 6 to 8. He had abused all of these children while living in their parents' homes because of the goodness of their hearts. This perverted sick pig destroyed so many lives. What a sick dirtbag. He is. As I already mentioned, even after Stanley was first sent to jail for abusing his underage family, he still wasn't looked into as a possible suspect in Jessica's death, his underage family member. Many of these victims that I just mentioned later would agree to testify against Stanley during Jessica's murder trial. They were all now adults, still living with the aftermath of what the Sturbeck had done to them. One of the girls was so traumatized that when the police later came to speak to her about Stanley, she passed out. It is infuriating that Stanley wasn't caught sooner. It could have prevented him from abusing his future victims. But now I'm going to tell you about how he was caught. In October of 2005, lead detective on the case Charles Mann passed away after battling lupus. The rookie who had tried to call Charles Mann to come to the house, Dave Greenwell, eventually became sheriff in 2010. Thank goodness, because even as a rookie, he had the sense of knowing how a missing child case should be handled. In 2007, Larry Carroll was hired by the Bullitt County Sheriff's Department to reopen Jessica's case. It is my speculation, but I bet this case haunted Greenwell. Being a rookie in a small area, this could have been his first murder he came across, and he was left out to dry the night he initially went to the scene. Greenwell said that he turned over photos that he had taken of the scene to one of the other detectives at the time, Jim Adams, but that the photos were never located in evidence. Louisville detective Lynn Hunt was hired to come and help with Jessica's case. She came out of retirement just to help get answers. And honestly, she is a rock star. It would be greatly due to her efforts that Stanley would finally be arrested for Jessica's murder in 2013. Her specialty was solving cold cases. That is an awesome specialty. Mm -hmm. She said that the evidence for Jessica's case was in disarray. Some of it was just stuff written on loose papers, sticky notes, and even on napkins. What? Witness information like contact info hadn't even been recorded. Like no phone numbers, addresses, that kind of thing. The evidence that had been preserved was mainly the stuff to do with Bucky Brooks. Other items of DNA evidence had also been tampered with. Apparently, a tissue sample from Jessica's leg had been taken to keep in evidence, but it was not properly stored and was destroyed. It sounded like it wasn't kept at the proper temperature to preserve it. Evidence that clearly stated, keep frozen, was never placed in a freezer. This is just mind-boggling how bad this investigation went. Yeah, it's almost unbelievable. Because these are things that just make sense. If it says keep frozen, put it in the freezer. Yeah, it's not rocket science. No. It seems like it should be standard procedure. Exactly. That anybody would know. Yes. You and I could figure that out, and we don't have any kind of criminal degree. Detective Hunt searched Jessica's room and learned that her shoe and wallet, along with other evidence found in the car, was kept by the family in a box in her bedroom. It wasn't even collected by the police as evidence. What? Seriously. When Hunt was hired, Mike reached out on January 15th, 2013, and asked her to look into two men that Jessica had been seen with the night before she went missing. In 2005, a witness told investigators that Jessica owed one of the men money, and that was why she was killed. These two men were alleged drug dealers, and it is believed that Stanley cut off Jessica's foot and a few fingers to make it look like it was a hit on her because of her involvement with these criminals. I think this entire story is hogwash. Nothing to me indicated that Jessica was messed up with a bad crowd. My guess is that this quote-unquote witness was Stanley's doing. Makes sense. I don't know for sure, though. Hunt said that these two men were already cleared by the FBI, as well as by follow-up interviews with them by detectives. 
Hunt would get the break in the case that she needed on June 6th. She received a phone call from Detective Gary Huffman from the Louisville Metro Police Department. Huffman had been interviewing an inmate about an unrelated case. At the end of this interview, Huffman had the sense to ask this man if he had any information regarding any unsolved homicides. Likely to his surprise, this inmate said that he did. This man said that he was still in contact with an old cellmate, Stanley Dishon. He said that Stanley had told him that he had strangled his niece to death. Again, this inmate gave details such as how Jessica's body had been moved closer to the road so that she would be found. This inmate also said that Stanley kept the girl alive for a few days before killing her and had mutilated her to make it look like it was the mafia or drug dealers who had killed her. Stanley also told this man that he was upset with his niece because she was involved with a boy her own age. He also said that evidence could be found under a fallen tree in the area where she was killed. And I believe it was the missing shoe that Stanley had buried. And was this the same person that had come forward when Bucky was on trial? I don't think this was the same inmate who originally reported Stanley in 2002. So he was bragging to other people. He was. And it was Detective Hunt who came across this statement from the original inmate sitting in a box when she reopened the case. Again, in case anyone is wondering, this inmate did not get any time taken off of his sentence at the time. He just wanted to do the right thing. This, along with Stanley's sexual abuse cases that he was already serving time for and facing new charges for, was more than enough cause to start investigating Jessica's dirtbag uncle. Jessica's brother Michael went out with Detective Hunt to start digging around the site where Jessica was found. They were looking for this buried evidence. It was said that they dug for six or seven hours in the rain trying to find anything they could. A lot of time had passed and it was a long shot. To put in perspective how much work this was, I read in one account that they potentially dug 175 holes. They found nothing buried in the ground. Before they gave up, Michael suggested that they check a few nearby buildings while they were there. There was a barn there that was a popular party spot for teens, including Jessica, even back in 1999. And this next part blows my mind. While searching the barn, they saw a bunched up piece of fabric in the corner. When they grabbed it and stretched it out, they discovered that it looked an awful lot like Jessica's bedsheet. Fifteen years later. Yes, it was still there. They rushed back to the Dishon home. Jessica's room had been left exactly like she had left it on September 10th, 1999. They quickly pulled back the comforter on Jessica's bed and discovered that the bottom sheet was missing. He'd remade the bed afterwards. That I'm not sure of. The bed had been made, and because they left her room the way that it was, they never noticed that the bottom sheet was missing. Who's going to make a bed with the bottom sheet missing? Right. Other than the dirt bag. Well, Edna had reportedly said that she was cleaning in the room, picking up clothes and that kind of stuff when she was upset that first night. Nobody's going to make a bed without a bottom sheet. Well, that's what I think. She had no idea that her daughter was kidnapped at this point, and she said she honestly couldn't recall if she had noticed the sheet missing. But I think you're right. She probably would have remembered if she had noticed. It would stand out to you so much. I think so. And at this point, she was hoping and expecting Jessica to come home. Mm -hmm. This tells me two things. One, there is no way the police thoroughly searched Jessica's room after she disappeared. And two, they somehow missed an entire bed sheet that belonged to Jessica's bed in a building known for teenagers to hang out in that was close to where Jessica was found. We're talking about a bed sheet. This was not a tiny piece of paper or an earring. I am shocked that he didn't go back and get it afterwards. He made no attempt to hide further evidence? I guess not. And it worked for him for 15 years. 
Wow. The bedsheet was dirty and blood-soaked and was still in the barn on Greenwell Ford Road on April 25, 2013, well over a decade later. Because it had been left in the dirt for so long, I don't believe the blood could properly be identified. Just that it was Jessica's bedsheet and it was covered in blood. But we all know it was Jessica's blood. Hunt did more digging and learned that Stanley lived with Mike and Edna with their children most of 1989 through 1996. It is highly believed that he was sexually abusing Jessica the entire time. When Stanley was interviewed by police on August 9th, he adamantly claimed he had nothing to do with what happened to Jessica. Police said he appeared nervous and was shaking. He was caught in lie after lie. He said he was working when Jessica was abducted, but the company he worked for at the time had since closed down and police couldn't find anyone who would corroborate his supposed alibi. Detective Hunt said that Stanley was basically already denying things before she could even finish her sentence. Once he started lying, he just couldn't stop. Stanley's true colors showed through as he became angry at the questions being asked of him. He spoke poorly of his murdered niece to the extent of using derogatory terms to describe her. It was said that he, quote, appeared genuinely angry with emotion when speaking. Who the heck would describe his murdered niece in a vulgar way to police who are interviewing him about her murder other than someone who was guilty? It's such a bizarre way to act. Yeah. He also tried to make himself out to be a hero, saying that he had taken three weeks off from work after she went missing to help find her. This was also false. Well, and even if he had taken three weeks off of work, it was probably because he was so sick over killing her. Right. But he was like, oh, I loved her so much, I took work off even to help. He also lied about the sexual abuse allegations regarding the other children in his family. It was said that he became so agitated that his shaking got so bad that he could hardly sit in a chair. Did he puke too? That I'm not sure of. He makes me want to puke, though. Based on what we know and how he was so angered when speaking about Jessica, my opinion is that he viewed Jessica as one of his sexual objects and was jealous that she had a boyfriend now and was worried the jig was up. Interestingly about this interview, the last report I found said that the written or audio transcript for this interview was not on file. So I don't know what's going on there. I wanted to mention as well that it is also believed that the reason Stanley had said he thought Bucky had something to do with Jessica's murder is because he knew Bucky had seen him there that morning. But Bucky didn't even remember seeing him there that morning. He hadn't told the police that. Not that I could find. If he did, it was not included in the report. Police were able to piece together what happened to Jessica. On the morning of September 10th, 1999, Stanley drove to his brother Mike's house to confront his niece when he knew she would be alone. He knew his brother and sister-in-law would already be at work, and he knew his nephews would have already left for school. Because he knew their routine because he used to live with them. Right. He started arguing with Jessica about her opening her mouth to anyone about what he had done to her for years. Things got heated and Stanley began chasing Jessica around the yard. It is hard to know for sure exactly what happened. We know that there was a struggle in her car. He had ripped her away as she was trying to call for help. He had also gone into the house at some point and grabbed a scarf to strangle her with. I think he also grabbed the bedsheet. I'm totally speculating, but I wouldn't doubt that he took her into her room and raped her there. I think he hit her so hard or strangled her to unconsciousness, wrapped her in the bedsheet and used it to carry her out of the house. Hmm. So I think it started in the car and went into the house and that's how he got the bedsheet. However, we know that he did not kill her at this point. Stanley Dishon kidnapped his brother's daughter and took her to the barn that the bedsheet was later found in. He held her there for the span of three days, beating and viciously raping her. 
When he had his fill, he took her life. He mutilated her body and discarded it. When she wasn't initially found, he went back to her decomposing body and moved it. He then kept his mouth shut for 15 years. Some believe that he had to have had help moving her body, but there isn't any evidence to support that. So he was raping and beating her in between helping his brother look for her. Yes. That is diabolical. It is. It is beyond evil. When the trial began in 2014, 15 years after Jessica's murder, it was said that the prosecution had to tread lightly. Subpar police work in the original case and the botched trial against Bucky made things risky. They didn't have the evidence that they should have had and didn't want to make the same mistakes twice. They would have to explain how they got it so wrong the first time and try and build up their credibility. Sheriff Greenwell gave emotional statements regarding the case. He was a rookie when it happened and couldn't explain why Stanley wasn't initially interviewed. He said that he was sure that they now had indicted the right person for Jessica's murder. During parts of his testimony, he had to pause as he broke into tears. He said, quote, What makes it so emotional is that I did all I could do at the time, but you never feel you've done enough. Because his hands were kind of tied. Because he was a rookie. Mm-hmm. He gave credit to Detective Hunt and Huffman in helping to solve Jessica's case. Honestly, without all three of these people, I think Stanley would have gotten away with murder and would have continued to rape his family's children. This case was a mess from the start. Both sides had a lot to lose. Stanley's lawyers managed to convince him to take a plea. He would later say he was tricked by his lawyers to do so. Stanley told the judge that he had killed Jessica and was guilty of incest, sodomy, and rape in the other four charges. As part of his plea, the murder charge was reduced to manslaughter, and his kidnapping charge was dismissed. What? Mm-hmm. I believe if the kidnapping charge along with the murder had stayed, he risked the death penalty, even though the prosecution wasn't pushing for it. He was guilty of first-degree murder. He absolutely was. This was an injustice. How come it was dropped to manslaughter? I think they were so worried because they didn't have the strong evidence that they needed that if they pushed for it and he didn't take the plea, he could have gotten off. Please tell me that this judge gives him the maximum sentence for manslaughter. And even that's not enough. It's not enough. Despite his admission, Stanley entered another Alfred plea. No. This way, his official deal would state that he was not admitting guilt, just recognizing that the evidence pointed towards him. Despite all of his charges holding between 18 to 20 year sentences, Stanley was ordered in March of 2015 to serve all his sentences concurrently. This means that he was given a maximum of 20 years in prison, with a minimum of 16 years to be served, meaning he could be released after only serving 16 years. As per the plea, he is not allowed to appeal the sentencing. After looking up his incarceration report, if I did my math right, if you added up all the years for each charge together, his crime should have cost him 178 years. Stanley is currently housed at Kentucky State Penitentiary. He is eligible for parole on December 31st, 2028. He will have served his full sentence on August 31st, 3033. This is not that far off. That is not long enough. Definitely not. A man like him should never be set free. Sheriff Greenwell made a few statements after the closing of Jessica's case. He admitted that Bucky was wrongly indicted and was in no way a suspect. One of Bucky's attorneys also said about this that, quote, Mr. Brooks's only poor fate in life was to be a neighbor in the wrong place at the wrong time. So I honestly hope that people have stopped harassing his family. The video I told you about was posted to YouTube just seven years ago. 
The prosecution was also emotional as they spoke with the press after the closing of Jessica's case. Attorney Michael Ferguson broke down about how sad it was that Stanley had killed Jessica. He said, quote, she was a 17-year-old who didn't need to die that way. Captain Mike Murdoch said, quote, I work night shift once a month. Every night I work, I go out there to Jessica's cross and pray for her to help us solve this case and our county needed this. Jessica needed this. Her family and I know from talking to Detective Hunt that her mother is very thankful, hugged her, and as far as the rest of the family, they all understand and know what happened with this and are very thankful too. And I believe the cross he is referring to is a little memorial set up where Jessica was found. Greenwell said that the entire community now needs to heal. Bucky Brooks made some statements after Stanley's plea. He said he finally felt a sense of closure and was happy he could have a fresh start. He said he and his family rejoiced at the thought of getting their lives back together. He said that his parents hadn't lived long enough to see his name be cleared. Bucky and his family did not express any grudge towards Stanley for not coming forward and stated that they understood that the police can make mistakes. Bucky expressed gratitude to his wife for staying by his side through the whole ordeal. He said their faith has kept them strong over the years. He also wished Jessica's family well. Wow, that is a strong individual. Yeah, just a really good person. Mm -hmm. Because how would you not be bitter? I don't know if I would have been that big of a person. I don't know if I could have been either. Especially to say he didn't hold a grudge against Stanley. Yeah. Stanley was the reason his family had gone through all of this. The main reason anyway. Since being incarcerated for Jessica's murder, Stanley has become vocal about his innocence. Of course he has. He denies having anything to do with her death. He wants his case reopened. He said he hadn't even seen his niece for months prior to her death. Stanley said that it is time he comes forward and tells the truth. He told WDRB News in an interview, quote, I want to tell people that I am an innocent man. I have been wrongly convicted and put into prison. I did not kill Jessica Dawn Dishon. I had nothing to do with that. He also said, quote, I don't care what you got. I did not do anything to harm my niece. I know that. I did not murder my niece. I am innocent. About entering the plea, he said, quote, I don't understand the law. I don't understand how the law even works. Remember, he went on to say he was tricked into the plea. However, at the time of the plea, he had to assure the judge that he fully understood what he was doing. Despite this, he said he was told to, quote, keep my mouth shut and not speak in court. He also said about his legal representation, they snuck around and didn't tell me what was going on. He is actually claiming to be the victim in all of this. What a dirtbag. Mm-hmm. Shockingly, one of Stanley's attorneys made a statement at the time that she, quote, believed whoever killed Jessica is still out there. I didn't include her name because I seriously hope she has changed her mind about this, because gross. The only silver lining about him making this disgusting claim is that unless he expresses remorse over his actions, I don't think he'll be granted parole when he becomes eligible. I think that has to be part of the parole. But I don't know with an Alfred plea. If you needed one more reason to want to punch this dirtbag in the face, here you go. During his news interview, Stanley spoke about Jessica. He said that she was a good kid and, quote, the only daughter my brother had. He admitted that he doesn't think about her very often. What? Yeah. He said, quote, I hope she went to heaven, and I believe the good Lord took her to heaven. Stanley reached out to the Innocence Project in 2017, but they rejected his case. I just think a man like this, who can do the things he has done to numerous children and then claim he is an innocent man, is the most dangerous type of monster out there. He didn't just claim he was innocent. He claimed he was the victim. He did. 
And I believe if released, he will 100% reoffend. He's not even trying to rehabilitate himself because he's saying he did nothing wrong. He's bragging about raping children. Yeah. And I'm not the only one who thinks this. There is a petition to try and keep Stanley behind bars. You can search it on change.org for more information about that if you're interested. Surprisingly, not all of the Dishon family members believe that Stanley is guilty of his convictions. His sister Wanda believes him. Mike does not. It would be so hard to believe a family member could do these atrocious things. Yeah, but I could not defend my brother if he had done these things. Mike does not believe Stanley. He knows what his brother did to his baby girl. Stanley has expressed how disappointed he is that Mike doesn't come to visit him in prison. He is angry about this and he wants to tell him right to his face that he's innocent. He says he won't back down an inch. He's probably lucky he doesn't come to visit him in prison because he would probably strangle him. Oh, I'm sure. And no one would blame him. Attorney Ferguson said about Stanley and his claims, quote, He is a despicable evil man, and where he is is where he belongs. God in his mercy may spare him of the fires of hell. That remains to be seen, but he belongs where he is today. Edna, Jessica's mother, has no doubt that Stanley killed her daughter. She rightfully called him a monster and said that him sitting in prison is not justice. Jessica's father, Mike, said that his brother Stanley will be 77 years old when he gets out of prison and he'll be waiting for him. And that is the case of a self-centered pedophile, monstrosity, who preyed on the children in his family until he escalated to murder, the abhorrent dirtbag Stanley Dishon. Christy, I hate this guy. Right? He's terrible. I hate him too. You were not kidding, Christy. That was a wild ride. Yeah, and Natasha was right. This case is going to stick with me for a while. And we hope, listeners, you stick with us for a while. Especially for our next case. Because Melissa has a new case for us next week. Until then, see ya. Bye. Testing, testing. Let's hope this is good. We got to get the show on the road. Like always. (laughs) We always seem like we're rushed. I know. Is he the dirtbag? I'm not answering that. Come on, Christy. (laughs) need to say something other than oh my goodness. (laughs) You're going to be saying oh my goodness a lot. Another, my eyeball is twitching. Like this case stresses me out. Is he innocent? I'm not telling you. What? You're like, that's what I just asked. And I'm like, yeah, but I answered it. <laughs> I got that, it. That, that makes yeah. sense. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little slow. That's okay. <laughs> hate him. I hate this guy. <laughs> I really do. Hate's not a strong enough word, I think, for him. I'm going to punch this guy. Yeah. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye.
come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.